Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Stars Like Us. I'm your host, Aliza Kelly, and today I am here connecting with Laura McCowan, who is an author and a voice for recovery. It is so nice to connect with you. You too. You um, too. Thanks. So I, I would love to, in my uh, astrology universe, I have a saying that there are no coincidences. Um, tank for short is what is how it goes. I uh, love that. <laughs> um, I'm gonna remember that. Yes, it's super important, and it also is just you know, it just rings true every time. So in this case, we had started to um, coordinate this podcast prior to the outbreak and tank for this podcast recording, because I think that the wisdom that you're going to be able to offer our listeners is even more crucial than ever before, um, considering that we are in such a tense and scary and, um, unknown moment. So yeah. um, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about yourself and tell us your genesis, if you will. Okay. So I, as you said, I'm an author. I wrote a book uh, that came out in January called We Are the Luckiest, uh, The Surprising Magic of a Sober Life. And it's about my own recovery story, uh, recovery from alcohol addiction. And really what it's like to get sober. I focused a lot on the sobriety story. I'm also a mom of one dot, one girl, 11-year-old. Uh, I live in Massachusetts near Boston. And uh, I've been sober for about almost six years. I actually had a really long career in marketing and advertising before I started doing what I do now, which, is, uh, which I'll talk about. But uh, I always point that out because I had a you know an entirely different life six years ago I was working at a big advertising agency in downtown Boston and uh, advertising is a huge drinking culture uh, like many industries are but I when I I I had always wanted to be a writer Uh, I started writing when I when I started to face the fact that I had to get sober which we can talk about any specifics related to that as much as you want uh, I started to write about it and the writing really helped me I mean I I often say it saved my life because I think it really did started to help me figure out what the hell was going on with me and what the bigger story was um, because I didn't just end up like that out of nowhere mm-hmm. you know I had a very put together uh, appearance on the outside, and I was drinking every night, uh, taking a lot of meds, uh, in a lot of trouble. My marriage had fallen apart. I was separated. I, I was. I had gotten a DUI. I was in really bad shape. Um, and when I started to get sober, I wrote. I started writing. I started podcasting, and I sort of built this other track of work that was really close to my heart and um, did that for a couple of years until in 2016 I finally made the leap and sort of went into what I'm doing now of course it was it looked different you know four years ago I didn't really have a full plan but I just knew that I wanted to work in this space and I really wanted to write a book so um, you know I'm kind of obsessed with personal development spirituality uh, 
why, you know, the bigger questions of life, like what are we doing here? And what is, you know, a lot of the, the questions of astrology, I, I would imagine. What, and, what um, is your, what is your sign, by the way? Do you, your sun I'm sign? I'm a Virgo. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Virgo to me um, has a really interesting role within when we talk about addiction within astrology. Really? Yeah. And we can, we'll get into that, but I okay. think. Okay. I'm like dying to know. I think that yeah, it, I'm, it plays I'm a very I'm right on the role. cusp. I'm the 20 January, oh, January, August 23rd. So I'm the day, you know, that it's in most calendars that it goes from Leo to Virgo. I never identified with Virgo either. I was like, that's not me. Oh my God. Now that I'm sober, <laughs> now that I'm sober and, uh, you know, I would say more who I am. It's hilariously true. So, From what I know. So tell us a little bit about like how you got to the position where you realized that you needed to become sober because I think that that is really, I mean, that's that's a very uh, hard thing to realize. <laughs> it, it is a very and, hard and thing to And to not realize. even realize but then to like actualize, to like act on, you know? Yes. Um you know, in, now that I, I know so much more about my experience and I have more context, I can say that I had been heading there since I started drinking, you know, probably even before. I was very primed to end up someone who became addicted because I had a lot. I'm an empath. I had a lot of um, trauma and I had a lot of, I didn't have many tools, you know. I didn't know, like most of us, you know, we didn't grow up learning how to feel things. And what I always highlight, and this is not unique in any way, but my parents got divorced when I was pretty young, about six. And at that time, and I, and even before then, but um, that time is something a lot of people, that, that type of event is something a lot of people can relate to. I started to learn how to shape shift to make other people be okay. Right. So, oh, God, who do who do I need to be to make sure that my mom is OK? Who do I need to be to make sure my dad is OK? And I I started to leave myself. Right. And I essentially that creates this really big disconnect internally when you when you aren't sure when you're your reference of how you are, how you feel, if you're OK is based on outside things, mm-hmm. outside factors, people, whatever. Um, and I developed some coping mechanisms to deal with that. You know, one is lying. I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, that's the big, that's the, the easy everyday lie. And the other one is just um, looking for ways to feel better. Um, I, food was, I would say, my first addiction, you know, changes your state. I started drinking when I was in, um, high school, but not, not, not a lot. Um, over the years, it's been different things, exercise, uh, work once I started working, but I, you know, you asked how I got to be at a place where I had to address becoming addicted. I mean, it was a slow burn over a long period of time. There's this, in the first chapter of my book, um, there's this Tennessee Williams quote that says, like, how did you go bankrupt? And it's like, uh, over time and then suddenly, mm. you know? Ooh, I just got and chills. That, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, it was, it was building and building and building. 
because the problem with the problem with alcohol is that it's so normalized and everyone does it and it's very it's it's like I said the only dr- drug you have to explain not using you know it was so much I didn't even question the fact that I would drink someday I just thought that's what all adults did it's what was it was everywhere in my family and not just drinking but over drinking and so there's behavior that wasn't normal or healthy by any stretch but it was easy to normalize it and I hung out with people who drank I hung out with people who drank like me I went into a line of work where people drink like me and uh I would say the big turning, the big sort of upticks in my drinking happened when I became a mom. It just changed. Uh, it's it kind of stopped working. I I say like I had used it for a long time to self medicate anxiety, and it just stopped working. So I I drank more, um, and then of course the stakes are higher when you have a kid, you know. Um, and then the second big uptick was when I got separated from my husband, which was just a few years after my daughter was born because no one was really watching me anymore. And that's when I got a DUI. And that's when I almost lost my job. And that's when I was blacking out every single night. Mm. And, um, but it, it's, it, again, it's like this slow, elusive becoming because uh, I can see problems from the very beginning. Um, but in 2013, the event that got me to actually walk into my first 12-step meeting and actually admit that this was a thing I needed to address was I left my daughter in a hotel room overnight by herself at my f- brother's wedding because I was blackout drunk. And it was a public event, meaning, you know, she found her way to my family, uh, my my mom knew what was going on. My brother knew what was going on. I write about it a little bit in the book. And I, br- I bring that up because it's like this, for all the terrible things that had happened, I never, ever thought that something like that could happen to me. Someone like me, right? Just never. It's like that's the, the big um, myth of that we have control. You know, I, th- mm-hmm. I still thought I had some amount of control. So that got me into that was and, and not because I wanted to, but because there was then pressure from the outside. You know, it was like this has to be dealt with or you're going to lose your daughter. So that got me going into sobriety. That was not the last time I drank. It took me a year and a half after that to get finally get sober. But, yeah, I am someone who, you know, there's all kinds of different stories about what it takes for people to admit. For me, I was a very low, low bottom person, but high, high functioning, right? So I still, I was a vice president. I was, I drove a nice car. I lived in a nice place, but yet, you know, there was that going on. Um, and I think it's, you know, for people that are listening, I think the important thing to keep in mind is, is there's a saying, it doesn't matter how much you drink or how often, but what happens to you when you do. And, and what happens doesn't mean outside consequences. It means like what happens to you internally when you do? Is there that shame? Is mm-hmm. there anxiety? Um, because my story, no, no two stories are the same, you know? Some people quit because they just have this gnawing feeling it's not doing their lives any favor, and that's perfect. And some people have to go, you know, much further Yes, I am. I am also a, a very much of a rock bottom person. So, mm. and also, you know, in various ways in my life, um, I have found, 
you know, it to be a much deeper bottom than I could have even imagined. Um, yes. Where I thought yes. that I sort of had was like, oh, wow, this is I, I, it's so visceral to me. It's almost like I can visualize like the wet, damp cell of my rock bottom. And then it yep. like drops from even there, you know? Yeah. So I, I relate to that. And I think that something I have found personally to be, a, you know, something that has frustrated me over the years, whether this is warranted or not, has been, um, I guess, almost maybe it's envy of people who know how to stop themselves before they reach rock bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, this, you know... I was always the kid who would push my, I was always like pushing things, trying to like push the edge a little bit. (laughs) I'm an astrologer. So like, obviously that is also a key part of my personality and like what actually motivates me and excites me. But I remember, you know, because my parents also divorced when I was six, seven, had a very long divorce. I then, you know, from that and then separately from that experienced lots of trauma and grew up with addiction and illness and like crazy, really difficult circumstances. I, from a very young age was like, what is going to, how can I like, you know, do something that is actually going to make a difference because Mm -hmm. it started to feel, you know, it was like, I wasn't, you mean make a difference in how you feel, make a difference in, how well, it was simultaneously trying not to feel, but then mm-hmm. see to to remember I was alive, you know, mm-hmm. to remember that like I could do something that I had control over. So, mm-hmm. you know, I if I was like, you know, no parent, none of my parents, neither of my parents and my stepmother was acknowledging if I was coming home at 11. So maybe if I came home at midnight, then they would say something. Maybe they would pay attention again. No. Okay. So maybe they'll come up. It'll be one. Maybe I won't have to come home at all. And then from there, like, would they say anything? Where does it, where will I actually like get some parenting? (laughs) I think is also what I was looking for is like, when is there going to be an intervention? I think what you said is so, is so important because it's like all we're ever doing, whether it's drinking or eating or our behaviors, our uh, everything is to try to get our needs met. Always. You know, there's a kind reason behind even the worst behaviors and it's just to get our needs met. Yeah. So that's all you were doing. You yeah. Know, that's all really any of us is ever doing. Totally. And, uh, you know, a lot of these habits um, form when we're, we don't really have many other options, you know, for being a young uh, adolescent trying to get someone to realize that I was hurting. Um, and no, and realistically and truthfully, nobody was, I mean, whether it was because of illness, their personal illness, or because of their ego, nobody was paying attention. So it was, I was doing that. I was doing the only thing that I could do at that time in order to really get attention. I have so much compassion for myself in those situations for everyone who goes through similar things when they're just basically like, you know, screaming to get some help in some way, either externally or internally, but they don't, there's not really many options. But then the tricky thing is how do you stop doing that? You know, how can you change that approach when that approach also becomes so embedded into your core person that 
no matter what the situation is, even when you do have the resources, you only know how to approach it with, you know, through that desperate energy. Yeah. I mean, there's so much, that is the question of recovery, right? And, um, a lot of it is neuroscience, you know, you have to actually rewire your brain and, and that's possible, which is beautiful, but it's, it's not a stop. It's like a, there has to be a behavior that replaces it, right? Many behaviors that replace it, they're, they're replace it. It's a learning and it's a process, right? I didn't stop, even after that horrific incident with my daughter, I didn't stop for another year and have, I literally couldn't. I couldn't, it was too much grief. I, it was too much, I was physically addicted for one, uh, not to mention psychologically addicted. And I mean, that is, that is the question, you know, and, and there's an element of spirituality in there too. I think that I could not stop on my own. It wasn't a matter, that's the big mistake you know, the big misconception is that it's just a matter of willpower yeah. and, are, and are you strong enough? And it certainly does take strength, inner strength. But it, if that was enough, man, <laughs> you know, it, it would, a lot of people wouldn't, mm-hmm. it, it, it would be a much different story, but it's, but it's not. And I'm sure, you know, if you are an astrologer, yeah. like, you're carrying other people's stuff into your life too, you know, generational things. These are patterns like the, the, the patterns in my family had been going on for generations and generations and generations. And so you're also breaking those patterns, right? When you break that type of thing and, and who knows what other, what other energies, you know, you're bringing into your life. I, I've never been envious of people that had a higher bottom because for me, it just took what it took. And it's like, I just have that much more compassion for people who have been to the places that I have been now for the moms, right? Because there's a special shame for moms who drink for, for anyone who has not been able to stop despite everything that has gotten them to that point in their life, all their resilience and you know, endurance and willpower and intelligence and all that wasn't enough. So I, I read, um, an article and I think it was in, I, I'm, I can't remember the publication for it, but I think it was in maybe like New York times magazine or the Atlantic or one of those Mm -hmm. publications that make me seem smart. (laughs) And, and, but it was talking about how women are, at such a disservice because we societally don't reach that point of, you know, that we oftentimes we don't have that single episode mm. that shows us, you know, that requ- either has that internal or external intervention mm. um, because we don't allow ourselves to get there. So whereas men, you know, more frequently and I'll try to find this article and then I'll try to link to it in the story note or the episode notes. But it, it was talking about how men more frequently will have these incidents where they'll go and, you know, smash their computers at work or, you know, hit their kid or like do something, punch the wall. Like they'll do something physical yeah. and obvious and that allows for, you know, this sense of awareness of like, wow, I've really gone too far. Yeah. And for women, it's, we are just, you know, the way that we are both wired and then also the way that we are expected to be in society, like we we tie everything up. 
So even yeah. when we have something horrendous happen, we find a way of explaining it and justifying it and like making sense of it so that we can continue forward because we don't want to be stigmatized by it. Oh, because we already have so many stigmas that we work with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. yeah I, I wonder if it was Sarah, Sarah Heppola who wrote that article because she wrote a book called Blackout um, and she talks a lot about that dynamic and there's a quote in there that I'll never forget of course I'm not going to get it exactly but it's something like when she was doing the research for her book she was very interested in blackouts and what people do in blackouts and she said and whoever she was talking to said men when men drink you know too much they hurt other people or things and when women drink too much they hurt themselves she has extraordinary insight into that particular aspect and it's true and it's honestly just the way that we're made it's not it's not even necessarily a disservice it's just we internalize things masculine energy is outward energy right and so it's just things happen outside more they're more they're more apt to fight physically they're more apt to crash you know like beat things Mm -hmm. up where women internalize it's a it's that feminine emotional energy so in my relationship and I have a very I have a very complicated and very checkered relationship with addiction personally obviously um from you know what my circumstances and situation were it obviously I haven't fully it's a life it's that's the life's work that's forever you know um but when I was 15 was the first time that I went into any sort of a treatment. And it was finally because I was able to um, really set myself up to, I mean, I more or less laid out all of the drugs that I was doing uh, in front of my family. A friend of mine had just died of a heroin overdose. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I actually, until I was writing my my manuscript that I just submitted, so this is for a book that's, (laughs) yeah, yeah, what a process. This is for a book that's coming out in 2021, but um, I I talk about that in the book, my friend who died and what was going on with me, the fact that we knew each other since we were kids, um, and both of us, you know, trying in our own ways to not feel because we didn't know really how to feel, we didn't know how to feel and we felt so much and we didn't, you know, you don't know how to deal with that. And I didn't even realize until I was writing the book that I basically, you know, of course this was not conscious at the time, but that I had left all of my drug paraphernalia for my parents to find, um, within six weeks of him dying. Uh, And I did not put those two things together at all. I had completely separated them because I was so shut down when he died and I was on so many drugs when he died that I didn't even, Mm -hmm. you know, in my retelling of that particular moment of my life, I didn't even think about the fact that one really was also a personal bottom for me, despite the fact that it hadn't, you know, I wasn't the one who died, but it was experiencing it, you know? And I think that growing up in New York City is one of the most amazing things that could be experienced, but I think that it requires, at least from my vantage, from my experience and perspective, it really does require a lot of hands-on awareness from the parents as to what's going on because you just have such easy access to everything. To everything. Yeah. You know, you have like the city becomes your playground and that includes all of the seedy shit mm-hmm. that includes you everything. Do not want to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, 
I'm currently reading um, The Body Keeps the Score. Oh, so good. Oh, my God. I'm like, it's just like every sentence is a breakthrough. So it's just like pew, pew. Like, wow, it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. It's it's so crazy because I've seen like I read the book the first time, I I think, five or six years ago, maybe even more um, because it's been out for a long time. But now it's it's been on the New York New York Times bestseller list for like some absurd number of weeks, like a year, because uh, it's had. The, I think there's this just re research re this new emergence of people being interested in trauma and the impact of trauma on the body and the body as a as a way to um, work with trauma. Yeah, one of the things that um, they is discussed in the book is the fact that like. No, we don't even have the ability in society to talk about bad things. You know, like we don't even we don't want to know what happens at war. We don't want to know what somebody is like when they black out. We don't want to like actually acknowledge these things on the collective level. So, of course, on an individual level, we don't have Mm. we, we aren't learning the tools very actively of being able to cope and handle stress and trauma and bad things that happen right. to us. Yeah. I mean, I've always been so interested in that stuff, but, but, and, and it's easy to assume that other people are too, or that what is knowledge, common knowledge to me now is, you know, common amongst most people, but it's certainly not. Yeah. You know, most people aren't even aware that their body does keep the score, you know, that their body is a record of every experience that they've ever had, every conversation they've ever, ever had, every relationship, every place they've ever been, and that our body manifests what our psyche cannot, you know, eventually. Well, this is actually an interesting place for me to mention the way that Virgo energy to me really ties into oh my God, please. The, the cycle, which is, you know, so each person has every single sign within their birth chart. So we all are an amalgamation of all of the different uh, zodiac energies, which are all the different archetypes. Um, and the zodiac in itself is a cycle. It's a, it's a full life cycle of a wheel of experience. Um, so each of the zodiac signs sort of have a certain role. They very deliberately fall between two signs very specifically, you know, as sort of a guidance for the one that comes before and also setting the stage for the one that comes after. And then on top of that, each zodiac sign has relationships with all of the other signs. Virgo falls at a very important place in the zodiac cycle because it's the last sign. Um, well, it's the sixth sign of the zodiac. So it's right before the zodiac splits in two and we get into Libra, which is the scales and balancing. So at Libra, we bring in partnership. We bring in plus one. Uh-huh. Virgo is the very last placement that we are sort of dealing just with self. And in Virgo energy, we're dealing with the physical self, the physical body Virgo is associated with the body you create for yourself. It is fitness and health and wellness and routines and systems and sort of physical things that keep things organized and neat and um, running and operating smoothly. But its opposite sign is Pisces, which is the last sign of the zodiac of all. So Pisces is the 12th sign and Pisces is associated with all the things we can't see all the the internal systems, all of the psychic systems, the fluidity and the emotions and um, energy. And it's basically all of the things that continue that are also flowing, but not the ones that have the 
earth sign physical uh, tangibility to them. So Virgo and Pisces are on the same axis where they're both thinking, how can I, you know, how can I make sense of the world around me? How can I find ways of um, categorizing and supporting and building structures? Virgo is thinking about these things on a terrestrial yeah. level and Pisces is thinking about these things on a spiritual, emotional yeah. level, but the two are inextricably linked. You cannot, you can't have one without the other. That is so crazy. Yeah. So it's... That like explains my entire, <laughs> entire life. It's, it's you know? the most important access to me when we are thinking about, you know, if I'm working with a client on... Um, any sort of addiction or addiction adjacent and addiction adjacent. I also mean just like secrets because secrets to Mm. me are very addiction adjacent. Um, Any sort of Mm -hmm. things that are just, we have a hard time bringing to the surface. That means that there's stuff in that access that we need to explore. It might not be physical stuff. It might be psychic stuff. It might be the opposite. It really might be physical stuff. It might be a physical addiction or it might be, a, you know, over-exercising. But, of course, it's going to relate back to the psychic space. So those two things yes. are always working um, harmoniously wow. together. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that that secrets are addiction adjacent because, to me, there's a, there's a huge chapter in my book about telling the truth. And it seems to be the chapter that has hit people the hardest because – that is that was the hardest part for me is the hardest part still in my recovery was learning to tell the truth being okay telling the truth figuring out what the truth even is and believing that I will be okay if I tell the truth yes and and I'm not talking about outright deception and like the way we typically think of lies I'm talking about people pleasing the these more socially acceptable ways that we lie right? We lie about who we are, what we want. Um, so I totally agree. And, and that's how, that is my first tip off to know if I'm not doing very well, if I'm not, if I'm becoming unwell inside as if I start to keep secrets. And my instinct is always to keep a little secret, just to have one little secret, right? What if it, even if it's a stupid behavior that, that isn't that consequential, but, um, I, it's it's secret. These little ways that I'll lie or manipulate the truth, that's how I know I'm not doing well. It's like, mm, all right. Yeah, that is, uh, that is also, for me personally, my biggest tell. Mm. And then also one of the most practical ways I work with people yeah. is, you know, the birth chart is such, the birth chart is such a lie detector. And <laughs> it is so beautiful because it's, you know, and that I think is, what really differentiates, I mean, there's so many fucking ways it's differentiated from any other kind of therapy or any sort of therapeutic work. But as an astrologer, I get to say, I don't think you're being honest. (laughs) Like, I don't think you're telling me the truth here. Yeah. And it sort of removes you from being this like, you're like, I'm just relaxed. Right. I'm just, hey, it's just in the chart. And it's true because I wouldn't be able to pull that out of my ass. But like, I also... (laughs) You know, it, it, there's literally techniques in astrology, um, in different types of astrology and one approach called horary astrology, which is more sort of like, you know, uh, 
it's more it's a little more fortune telling. It's more like Q and A, like what do I do here? And then the chart gives an answer. There's certain things that it's like if you see X, Y, and Z, you need you can't answer the question because you don't have all the information. And mm. it might be that the person is intentionally withholding, or they don't even know they're withholding. But right. knowing that, you know, when I was learning astrology and learning that it was only, I was only playing myself by not being honest. I was only yes. like, it just, it, I, I felt like I was injected with truth serum and it was in, for me, the year was, uh, I guess, 2016 and everything, you know, had fallen apart again in my life. Mm-hmm. And this time though, I was acknowledging it and I was mm-hmm. talking about it in real time, but it was almost like I did, I forgot how to have like nicety conversations. Like so people would ask me how I was and I was like, oh, okay, like, yes, here we go. This is what I'm working with. And I was almost like, zip it, Aliza. Like people don't want to hear about this shit. But it was like all of my, all of my life of not being honest, suddenly mm-hmm. I could no longer, I couldn't do it anymore. And yeah, yeah. now I have a little bit more, you know, social decorum, but I, I always know my truth and mm-hmm. you know, I do, I don't necessarily, that's not always my first instinct, but I always make sure that I know my truth. Mm-hmm. If I feel like I, I, I check myself, you know, I hold myself accountable to what I say and what I believe, which also means I have to change my mind a lot too. You gotta change your mind. It's, a, it's also just learning to be self-referencing versus other referencing. Like the, what I had talked about in the beginning, you know, if you're used to gauging your world and your okayness on how other people are doing on outside things, learning to be self-referencing for a lot of people, especially a lot of people that are new that get sober. They don't, they feel like they don't know who they are. They don't know how to answer basic questions. Like, what do I want? And I'm not talking, what do you want for your entire life? But like, are you hungry? Are you tired? They don't even know, you know, cause they've been other referencing for so long. So, so the lying in that case isn't even, it's so subconscious. It's so programmed because it's just a survival mechanism, right? It's like, if I tell you the truth, you're not going to stay with me or you're not going to, I'm not going to, um, whatever the story is that you tell yourself, it's like, of course I'm going to lie. I don't even consider it lying. Yes. You know, I'm just doing what I need to do to get my needs met. And I, the big lie is that, is that, that I had to, or the big truth that I had to learn is that honesty brings me closer to love, not the other way around. Yes. We often think if we are honest, we will, that will move us further away from love. Yeah. That, that makes, I think that's really beautiful. And that makes a lot of sense. It's when I think that when we are, I like to think of myself as a recovering empath um, (laughs) because, and I've recently been sort of exploring the language on this because I, my practice is built on empathy. Of course. It's why you, what's why I right. can do what I do too. Yes. I think empathy should be taught in schools. Like I think empathy as a practice, as a choice of choosing to be empathetic is the only thing that is going to keep us as a, as a civilization alive. Mm-hmm. But I did not choose to be an empath. That no. was a reaction and a response to situations that were out of my control. That was my ability to try to gain control in an uncontrolled situation. Yeah. So I, I think it's really quite interesting how as a society right now, and I, I, you know, uh, 
I did this too for most of my practice. And as soon as I learned what an empath was, I was like, that's me. Amazing. And then are you an empath? Me too. Yeah. Like that's great. But I don't want to be an empath anymore. Well, you don't want to be a, you don't want to be i I'm putting words in your mouth perhaps, but you don't want to be a, the dark side of the empath where you're, you're constantly at the mercy of whatever comes at you. Yes. I want to be empathetic. I want to be sensitive. I want to have boundaries. And that's right. That's not something that um, when we sort of become empaths by way of difficult circumstances, boundaries are not part of the instruction manual of how no, to do that. Of course not. Um, no. It's, but an empath with boundaries is like the, the the most powerful person there is, you know. I think that for me, learning how to not, and this is a work in progress, but, you know, again, like a tank, there are no coincidences, you know, being an mm-hmm. astrologer and when I first started having my sessions go for six fucking hours because I didn't know how to (laughs) stop, (laughs) you know, like I didn't know how to stop delivering information because I just wanted everyone to be happy. I had to learn how to find, to feel like I was doing enough with the parameters that I had. Yeah. We all have to go through that path though. You have to do it and feel the pain of it before you go, Oh, can't live like that. Totally. <laughs> um, six hours <laughs> just kept going <laughs> yeah what else I know you need more right and I was I would like wait for and like a good empath I was like wait for these psychic signals like a twitch in their face or some you know a sigh or some sort of a very subtle gesture for me to get resolve that like they were satisfied and it wouldn't happen so I was like you want tarot We'll do tarot. You want to do some magic? Okay, great. I'll put my incense out. Let's have light some candles. You never, you can move in. Like, fine. (laughs) Uh, So starting to work on the phone, no longer doing in-person sessions, all of these things um, created, were were important ways for me to structure, to learn how to create boundaries. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, there's always, I, I like to believe that there's always one entry point. That's also how we look at a birth chart. We find an easy mm-hmm. entry point. So whatever that entry point is for someone, that's amazing because as soon as you get in, you can start learning, being like, okay, I can do these professionally. So maybe I can do these interpersonally. Maybe I can do these in my romantic relationships. Yes, 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 yes. I want to ask you, um, we, as we talked about at the very beginning, um, we're currently all in hell. Um, I actually, in astrology, I've been saying that we are in the 12th house, which is actually the area associated with Pisces. So we're kind of in that Virgo Pisces access right now, all of us. Um, we're all trapped in some capacity. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of people are struggling. And it's one of those yeah. recreated simulations of childhood for a lot of people. Where just like if you didn't have choices as a kid, you don't have choices now. So you're reverting to that same behavior set. Um, How do we, how do we deal? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I have seen, there's way more relapse than I've ever seen. And, you know, I've been doing this for a a few years now. Um, And I don't and, and. It is that regression. It's just we go to what knows when we're in times of, and we're not even in stress. We're in crisis, right? So our brains work extraordinarily different when we're in crisis. It is life and death. You know, there is 
the stakes are that high. So yeah, it is right. And not even death, you know, of, of the virus, but just like people's jobs. So we, you know, our, our most fundamental, um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is real, right? When our, we, like all these niceties are, our niceties because our basic needs are met and we're safe and and a lot of people just aren't safe now so right we go into crisis mode and we're a lot of us are in survival mode so of course we're going to regress to what works and for a lot of people that means um going back to addictions either process addictions or chemical you know uh, drug addictions that um that just help them cope um so what can we do um, one thing is just to acknowledge that we are in crisis mode and what that means, our brains work differently in crisis mode. We have to keep things in the day. Like, well, first of all, um, acknowledging that we are also in a grief process, right? So what we are, we had to not just let go of like, our our day-to-day you know things we had to let go of this entire idea of what our life was going to be like right which I don't think a lot of us acknowledge you know um that and you can see people kind of going through the stages of grief right there's a sort of at first it was denial it's just like of course not I was on book I had done half my book tour I still had half my book tour to do you know it's a big deal it's my first book I was like, of course things aren't going to get canceled. No, it's not all going to get canceled. That's ridiculous, you know? And then you start to see it. It's like, oh, my God, okay, things are – no, this is real. And then you do the anger, and then you do the bargaining. And it's not this lin- linear process, but you see people now – I think um, a lot of people are angry. There's a lot of bargaining going on. Um, and wh- the reason I bring this up is just pure acknowledgement of, like, this is where we are you know, um, and, and that you're not supposed that, that feeling all over the place and, um, regression to bad behaviors or not even bad, just prior behaviors and sort of, um, just being on this roller coaster that feels very out of control is totally normal. It would be weird if you didn't feel that way. Um, the best, the best sort of tips practices that I, know of our one is a routine like we thrive uh, we thrive in times like this when we have basic routines set up so as hard as it might be like doing something good for yourself in the morning I I'm not a routine person I sort of reject all that which maybe is surprising as a Virgo I don't know but but I am more routined in this time than I am ever have been because I have a daughter who's home you know, like she has to be homeschooled. I have to exercise or I will absolutely lose my mind. I have to meditate or I will absolutely lose my mind. And if those things don't happen, I start to go into a really bad place fast. So routine, it sounds so pedantic and like annoying, but it's true. Um, It really does help. And then also keeping things in the day. Like there, when I got sober, um, The idea of being sober forever absolutely just didn't make sense to me. I could not imagine a life where I never drank again. It was that idea filled me with so much despair, so much impossibility that it, it, I drank at that idea 
for a long time. A lot of that year and a half of me working towards getting sober but not being able to get sober was because I tried to project the rest of my life out and I couldn't. And so what I learned, uh, and it's a chapter in my book, it's called Forget Forever. Like you only, the only thing that's real is what's happening right now anyway. I'm having a conversation with you. That is what's happening, right? And if I, I don't know how to do the rest of the day. I don't know how to do the rest of the week. Um, I, we had a, there's a press conference today in Massachusetts about what's going to happen with reopening. And I'm so anxious to know. And I have filled myself with all this future tripping ideas about if they don't reopen, you know, by X date, I'm going to lose my mind. I'm never going to go on a date again. And I'm never going to be able this and this and this. And it fills, it fills me with so much despair. But this moment right now I can do, right? In this moment, everything is actually okay. I'm just having a conversation with you. So it's the age old, not just Buddhist practice, but Buddhism especially, but a spiritual practice of being in the, in the moment and really knowing that that's the only thing that's happening anyway. Um, I'll, uh, I'll end with this one story because it sort of so it's, it's illustrates this concept so well. So uh, I'm a yoga teacher. I have been for a long time. And my first yoga teacher training um, was like 10 years ago. And we do these really intense weekends where we're all together for sat- all day Saturday, all day Sunday. And at the end of the day on Sunday, everyone's pretty raw and just, you know, more open to say things and uh, that they wouldn't typically say. And our teacher gathered us around. He's like, all right, so what's going on? What's coming up for you guys? And one of the guys in the program stood up and he said, I'm afraid I can't stop drinking. And everyone was just like, holy shit. And my teacher, our teacher, just smiled. And he was like, of course you can. Are you drinking right now? And he was like, no. <laughs> and he's like, right, how about right now? He's like, no. He said, and now? He said, no. And I never forgot that because it's like, you can do anything right now, mm-hmm. right? You can do anything right now. And that's the only thing we're ever doing. So I think th- that lesson to me is what is the, the acknowledgement that this is fucking crazy and that it's, you're not supposed to feel normal. You're not supposed to be performing well and functioning well. And, and all that is one piece. And the other piece is not like we, you can do this moment. You can do today. And to, to try to manage yourself that way, I, I mean, it's the only way to do it, really. Yeah. So, and it's not just a skill for this time, it's a skill for forever, right? So if you have that inner resource, you can build it up. You can, I think I have been saying people in recovery are kind of well-suited for this time because of that. Um, so yeah, I would say those two things are huge. Yeah. You know, they're huge right now. And the feelings, no feelings are final, you know, mm. no feelings are final. Um, it's okay to let things, it, it, the, building up the capacity to stay even for five seconds with, with discomfort, um, is the crux of what it means to be a human. <laughs> totally. Know? Yes. It's sometimes when I think about, you know, I oscillate in sort of thinking like it's to, I, who is it? It's like the existential, I think it's like Nietzsche. It's like to live mm-hmm. is to suffer. Mm. And like, sometimes I'm like, Oh, what a horrible thing. And then I'm sometimes I'm like, okay, well, if we acknowledge that, like that life is fucking hard <laughs> yeah. and that things are really unpleasant a lot of the time, mm-hmm. then 
great. We could go from there. Yeah. Like we could actually start like living as soon as we acknowledge like shit's bad. The only way I have ever found out of that suffering is the mo- is to be in the moment that you're in. And it's not that you're out of it. It's that it's okay. You can tolerate it in the moment. So there's this great equation in recovery circles. It's like pain times resistance equals suffering. Like pain is just a fact. It is part of life. The suffering comes from resisting that, mm. right? So pain times times resistance is where the suffering is. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that I like that. I'm going to ruminate on that. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. You are um, such a joy, such a wonderful Virgo energy, <laughs> grounding energy in this time of chaos. Um, so where can we find you? Yeah, everything is on my website. It's my name, lauramccowan.com. My book is uh, is everywhere you can buy books. Um, although I would say don't buy from Amazon. Buy from an indie bookstore, please. Yeah, and I'm on Instagram at, at laura underscore McCowan. That's where I hang out most and um, on social media. Yes. Amazing. Thank you so, thank much. You so awesome. much. 